to a Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today I'm going to be speaking about the subject that is very much dear and near to us all in different ways. It's uh, simple and it's subtle. It has to do with the power of dialogue for creating peace at home and on numerous different levels related to our community, our state, our country, and then to nations across the planet. So interesting. We have this idea that creating peace is near impossible because it has only happened, in relatively speaking, small measures over the course of human history. When we look at human history, we see largely a history of war, certainly of violence and conflict. And clearly, these are very real parts of daily life across the globe and has been literally for millennia. At the same time, there has actually been a tremendous amount of cooperation, of benevolence, of service, of people paying close attention to the needs of their families, mothers especially, and to neighbors and on. Just keep expanding out the paradigm and you find that human beings are significantly capable and ready to cooperate with each other, help each other out, lend each other a hand, and do what needs to be done on each other's behalf. Many people risk their lives for other people as a matter of course. For some, it's a matter of routine. Some of them, it's actually their job. Look at policemen and firemen military as examples. Military is a little bit more complex because the reason that most wars are fought are actually not for the higher values and virtues of human beings. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, the realization of happiness, but rather for um, let's say uh, corporate interests oftentimes confused with this idea of national interests and sometimes further confused with the idea of national security. Not to say there isn't any relationship at all between those items. There is from a certain limited relativistic point of view. But when you look at the world holistically, when you look at people as part of a species, it changes the game. So a lot of what I talk about, those of you who listen with regularity know, I speak about perspective. <clears throat> and the perspective that we engage alters our thinking. Of course, it is an alteration of thinking, which in turn alters our brain and our neural pathways which in turn alters our body's chemistry, which in turn uh, 
changes our hormonal balance. And depending on the perspective that we engage, we'll release more or less oxytocin. Now, those of you, again, who listen uh, with regularity know that that's just my favorite of all time hormone. Why? Because it's the love hormone. It's the bonding hormone. And it's built in. It's an intrinsic part of human biology. Well, you could say, so is cortisol. That's true. So is adrenaline. That's true. These are more, you could say, separatist or divisive in some way in that they take one individual uh, or a group and has them on the run, either a fight or flight mechanism or, uh, on the other hand, when we have oxytocin, we have, you could call it a bonding, binding unifying hormone and that confers chemically confers that kind of experience it influences our emotions it influences our heart it influences the circulation in our body it changes our nervous system it makes us much more amicable and affable and building affinity as you can hear in the words, they're linguistically connected. And that's not by uh, happenstance. It's all part of a whole, if you will. And when we look at ourselves from that point of view, well, I think it was Will Rogers who said that any stranger is only a friend I haven't yet met. Something of that sort. I've always very much appreciated that point of view. Well, you could say, how could this be the case when we're looking at the distinctions between, let's say, religions or economic classes, between which there is a fair amount of elitism typically or a feeling of uh, superiority, in some cases, supremacy and looking down the nose at others who are not as materially well off or people of different skin color. I mean, just how much more superficial can you get? It's only skin deep in that last case. I mean, when you look from the larger point of view from the species, the perspective of human humans as members of a species from different geographical regions, which then gives rise to different cultural activities, cultural uh, natures, different customs, different music, different food, different language, different dance and artistic expressions, different religious beliefs as well. Well, of course, People in the northern climes are going to be developing differently than those in, say, South America or South Africa or in the lower reaches of Asia, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines. Of course, that's part of the beauty of 
biodiversity. It was designed that way, that different members of a species will bring different attributes to the table for purposes of any species, which is survival. Now, I'm saying this because if we look at this substratum and we deal with the issues that we face economically, socially, politically, religious, institutionally, we have a different vantage point to view all of these rather than seeing them as all conflicting or at odds with one another, when one raises one's altitude and sees that these different cultural expressions and different racial expressions, for that matter, arise from different geographical conditions and circumstances, one can say, but of course, now I understand, it all makes sense. Those in South India use a lot of spices in their cuisine. Why? Because it keeps their bodies cooler in intense heat. It also is designed through great levels of creativity and intelligence to uh, ward off potential bacterial infection that occurs in certain climatic conditions. It also uh, becomes antibacterial, uh, antiviral, antifungal as a function of the spices, just the spices and the fruit choices that are made in each respective region. You'll find the same things across South America and South Africa you will find the use of different types of spices and herbs and foods that complement the climate of the area, as it should be. And, of course, you find the same thing in the northern regions as well. So rather than saying, oh, I don't like curcumin, how about isn't this an expression of intelligence of human creative intelligence, perhaps instinct, that the people of those very hot and humid areas would use these spices, which we know drop body temperature through perspiration, typically. It's kind of interesting. So what looked like at one level of latitude, if you will, and longitude, as a problem as a conflict, as an issue, when we rise above it and look from a higher perspective, we go from a feeling, perhaps, or a mental perspective of conflict to one of, ah, God is so great. Look at what she has brought forward. Such colors, such blends, such different qualities and nuances of culture, the world around. Kind of interesting. So when we look at the world this way, when we start to come from a place of appreciation and respect 
for each other's culture and for the nuances inside those cultures as they occur in families. So we get down to that level and we see it expressed in different cultural expressions of government, of, of, uh, of governance. We say, my gosh, it's all part and parcel of a whole. This is all part of a whole weave, a, a whole tapestry. And if I tune into that, I can glean the values of these people. And as a result, I can then engage in meaningful dialogue. We can eat together, break bread, or none together, as the case may be. And we can drink together. We can listen to music together, in most cases. And we can laugh together, if the humor is good enough. Well, why am I saying all of these things? Well, because these are the real, bottom line, constituent parts of daily living all over the planet. Whether it's people sitting in a cafe in Paris, talking and enjoying um, a, a café au lait after a long day of work, or people having a, lingo, a mango lassi after a long day of working in Delhi. I mean, it's basically human beings within the context of their own culture, letting go, relaxing, shifting gears, and becoming more human, you could say. So imagine that we set up a kind of context for world leaders, let's start at that level, to sit and talk at a dinner or lunch that's being held in their respective capitals with other world leaders, enjoying the food of that respective culture, enjoying the music or dance or some kind of cultural expression, which gets everyone on the same page, the same frequency, if you will. And literally, they are relaxing, which means they're going into an alpha state. They're creating some level of coherence, both in the brain, the head brain, and the heart brain. There is a sense of well-being among people who, on one level, on the most base level, may even consider each other enemies or in combat with one another in one way or another, whether that's military or economic. And when you raise the bar a bit through the relaxation of those present and you sup together and you express appreciation of each other's cultural nuances as in food, as in music, as in dance, as in humor, as in clothing, fashion, costume, outfit. All of these become places of conjoining and unifying rather than separating. 
And it's so important because out of these, the sense of bonding is, of course, as I said before, released oxytocin. So minutes before, or an hour or so, let's say before, there may have been tensions in the dining room. Now, as a result of these different kinds of cultural expressions, a greater sense of relaxedness, alpha and camaraderie, also alpha, the awakening of the engagement of the prefrontal context can be related to alpha, but certainly a sense of camaraderie. And if it goes far enough, it can actually engage differing levels of the heart, maybe through a sense of awe of what it is going on, a sense of wonder, or a sense of curiosity. Maybe even a collective sense of humility in the presence of beauty that's being expressed culturally or in the natural setting people find themselves in in a given respective country. Are you with me? You're following these different levels and you see that we're building something. We're really constructing a space of well-being and of dialogue and that's of course what today's talk today's show is focused on in fact I probably should have read the prologue to start with but of course I've jumped in but it's still relevant so I will we have conversations all the time some of them are happy some are practical some are lofty others are critical and others are sort of filling space and time. We all know some of those. But there are kinds of conversations that are consciously creative and recognize language as a tool for incredible possibility. This is what Mitchell, I will be speaking about today in the show, and how to conduct conversations and the ideas behind them to create a kind of world we want, abundant with peace, cooperation, kindness, respecting differences, and well-being for all, from the level of family to the family of nations. As a species, we have war and violence as a mean to attempt to resolve conflict, and we have linguistic communication in the form of diplomacy really to resolve conflict. The history of our species shows that we have used war and violence frequently to settle disputes between people, to control them, and to settle disputes between neighbors and nations. Thankfully, we have some history of diplomacy and negotiation as well, successful, effective diplomacy and negotiation. Rational faculties have been used, but altogether too infrequently relative to our neural and mental capacities to do so, and relative to our history, which shows that we have largely opted for the irrational, for the emotionally driven, the impulsive, the egoic, i.e. egotistical, way 
of conducting business at hand between people, in families, in businesses, in nations. So once we begin to make these distinctions, we start to get leverage on ourselves and we can start to engage nonviolent communication, responsible communication in which there is accountability and there is uh, no blame and there is taking responsibility for one's own feelings, actions, and reactions. So tonight's program is to discuss the possibility of creating, speaking, and languaging our way to peace, to eco-harmony. I may have made that word up, but I think you all get it. Social equity and prosperity. Did I say this was going to be easy? No, absolutely not. But there is a will, when there is a will, to accomplish this. A commitment to it based on the understanding of its sheer life and death necessity, as in the proverb, necessity is the mother of invention. It can be done. It can be done. So tune in tonight and enjoy because this is very much a part of my work and my practice with clients, whether we are dealing with issues at home between fathers and mothers or mothers and sons and daughters and fathers, siblings, or on the job, people dealing with each other, with business partners, or with politicians seeking to relate to their constituents or politicians relating to each other, or diplomats. All of this comes under the rubric of how do we be diplomatic, how do we be authentic, and how do we accomplish the mission, the desired outcome, the desired outcome of peace, truth-telling, of tolerance, of acceptance, of patience, of kindness, of forgiveness, of understanding, of compassion. Is that asking too much of a human being with the kind of brain system that we have, with our linguistic capacity, with our ability to learn other languages? We are a truly anthropocentric uh, species. We think that virtually everything begins and dies through us and our own actions. We have not taken our proper position in the larger eco-hierarchy, if you will, and that has caused a lot of the problems. There are also religious texts which suggest that we subdue nature even though nature is our mother. Nature is literally our God. It is what has given birth to us in physical form and exists every bit as much in invisible form as invisible. And many teachings do recognize this. The relationship of the form and the formless in Buddhist psychology. Buddhist science, for that matter. 
we understand even from the Jewish and Christian traditions the idea of the angelic. Well, these are formless beings. We understand that there are what are considered multidimensional realities which are occurring, parallel realities, which seem very far out to the ordinary mind because we don't allow our minds to be fully creative and imaginative and even rational and logical to think why in the world, if we know there are multi-dimensions, do we continue to clip and um, curtail the expansiveness of our imagination and possibility to just one three-dimensional reality? You see, when you start to use your mind in these ways, it starts to get very, very exciting and you realize what boxes we tend to live in and habituate to through our daily lives. Now, there are reasons for the habituation. It's not a bad thing in itself that we are primarily tuned in to the three-dimensional world. After all, we have things like rent to pay, food to eat, the survival and thrival of our own physical bodies. So, it's not a bad thing. It's a very good thing. However, it's an even better thing to remember and have as part of our daily, if not moment-to-moment consciousness, that we are part of a whole, of a multidimensionality far beyond this three-dimensional one. Far beyond. I don't mean necessarily in space, but that too. But far beyond from this simple kind of visual reality. There's much more to the game. But that's not the full focus of today's talk. That's just something I touch upon to bring it to bear in this larger conversation because everything here is relevant. Right now, we are looking at a three-dimensional reality that we have jeopardized the nature of quite literally, the nature of. That is our own nature every bit as much as it is the nature of what we see outside us and call nature. The trees, the plants, the herbs, the earth herself, soil, animals, bacteria, all of it from every scale the amoeba on upward, varying levels of complexity. And, of course, we are among those varying levels of complexity. You notice I didn't say that we are the pinnacle because that is actually in very, very serious debate, as it should be. I know that we've been raised with the thought that we are the acme of evolution, or of God's creation, right? Yeah, yeah. We were raised with that thought. But we actually don't have a whole lot of evidence of it. What? (laughs) Yes, not a whole lot of evidence. Yes, we may have developed technologies. We may have a rather strong and slightly heavy brain. We have attributes 
that are outstanding and, from another point of view, miraculous. When we do have a prefrontal cortex, we do have a heart chakra. You know, we've got a subtle energy body. We've got a lot of things that are pretty remarkable, but the argument could clearly be made that many of those in the animal kingdom, the mammalian kingdom, dolphins, whales, others, are of comparable intelligence and maybe even have more in some domains or dimensions than we know of. And we have no way to actually know for sure. So it's interesting that we, when contemplating these things, find that we actually know a whole lot less than we may know. And we've come to know a fair amount, but how do you assess fair amount? I mean, by what measure do we know a fair amount? Some people know what they know purely intuitively, and some instinctively. And it's kind of interesting because a lot of people with a lot of book learning and degrees in different educational institutions across our country and across the world in some ways may not know as much as the uh, guy down the street selling hot dogs on a stand. It's just different types of knowledge and, dare I say, wisdom. So we have to be humble in the presence and in contemplation of all these types of thoughts and comparisons. They're all relativistic. So let's come back. Let's come back. First of all, let me just say again that this is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. We are on Blog Talk Radio every single Wednesday at 6 p.m. Sometimes we're on at other times as well. And we pre-record and then we re-air at this time slot. We're also on, we, I am on television every Monday evening at this point at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time in New York City, more specifically in Manhattan. But no worry, no fret. You can see the show at our website from anywhere, from Nome, Alaska to Tokyo, Japan, by going to www.abetterworld.tv. And it's at that same website, abetterworld, abetterworld.tv, that you can also sign up for our weekly free newsletter. And we have many tens of thousands of people across the world who receive this newsletter and uh, enjoy the writing and also knowing the blog. I write frequently, not infrequently, I should say. And uh, also the description of the guests that I so often have. For instance, this past Monday and this coming Wednesday, part two, of a lovely gentleman, cellist, Michael Fitzpatrick, who made a CD with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in Kentucky in caves to recreate an audio, an acoustic that is exceptional. And it's a very beautiful album. 
and it was done to commemorate the beautiful relationship between the Dalai Lama and his good friend, the Trappist monk, Thomas Merton, who is no longer with us in in the body anymore and hasn't been for quite a while. It's a whole long story in itself. But Michael uh, collaborated with, with His Holiness uh, to produce this album called Compassion. And if you tune in to A Better World TV through our website, abetterworld.tv or abetterworld.net, either one, you can watch part two of this interview I did with Michael some time ago. So that gives you an example of the kind of uh, work we do here, the kind of service we provide to our precious planet. And I like speaking about these subjects we're discussing because I feel it brings a level of beauty, a beauty uh, level of education, and a level of inspiration to the people who listen. And that's the feedback I have certainly gotten over the course of the years that we have been on to our national and our international audience. We so appreciate your joining us and paying attention to it and then taking the link from our website and uh, forwarding it to others, friends and family and colleagues that you feel should hear these words. So I'm going to circle back around to a couple of important points. And they are that there are certain, you could say, uh, simple items that, when implemented, can create an atmosphere of well-being through which we are reducing reactivity, we are reducing impulsivity, we are reducing the uh, potential for violence and conflict. Wow! And we can do it all through this remarkable tool we have all been gifted called language. You mean we don't need missiles and bombs and guns and we don't need lots of prisons and we don't need a lot of warfare and we don't need a lot of uh, drones and tanks and air fighters of one sort or another. Yeah, that is exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying. I'm saying that there are ways of simply communicating with our big, powerful nervous system, our big brain, and our hearts, and the creativity that comes with each of these brains to work with each other in a way and go by some guidelines of how to communicate that could lead to peace and cooperation, that can lead to justice, that can then create a kind of economic system, political system, social system, social interaction, I'd rather think of it as, 
that can create harmony among members of the species. You notice I'm always referring to the species because to me, that's an elevated way to think of ourselves. When we get caught up, as so many people are, in I feel the profound pettiness. Can you have that? Profound pettiness? You betcha. Of looking at race as a divisive fact rather than as an inclusive and interesting expression of biodiversity. When we focus on the tiny littleness of ego and separation, we run amok. We wreak havoc on each other. We cause division. And then, and therein, lies hell. Hell. And its opposite. When we listen to each other, we pay attention, we enjoy each other's humor, food, music. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, that seems so irrelevant. Not yet. Oh, he. It's not irrelevant at all. It's directly, wholly relevant. You know, I gave a talk last July with a group of my fellow FIONS members of the board. FIONS is the Friends of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which is a kind of a chapter of an outgrowth of IONS out in Petaluma, California, called the Institute of Noetic Sciences, founded by the very special astronaut and astrophysicist Edgar Mitchell back in the early 70s. It's a long story. I think I've said it before, how I was connected to that whole enterprise very early on through uh, a family that I knew well at the time that helped to fund. They were the main funders, in fact, of Edgar Mitchell to launch IONS. And they're still deeply integrated and involved in the Institute. And we here in New York City have our own nonprofit organization called FIONS that helps to promote the worldview and values of FIONS, which are very much uh, our own. And uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful group, and we do a lot together. One of the things, one of the events that we were part of took place up at the Wainwright House in Rye, New York, in Westchester, a very beautiful place. And we were giving talks and presentations of different sorts, including music and uh, a number of things as the afternoon wore on. Uh, it was really, really very engaging. And uh, what I spoke about was this kind of fun fantasy that I wanted to make into a film, which would be of, in that case then, uh, Obama and Putin. But that's just the, the characters in hand now. It could be generalized to any number of heads of state over time. 
And Obama goes over to Moscow and spends some time with uh, Vladimir. And they start spending time first by undoing their ties, putting on some comfortable clothing, and uh, watching some um, Russian folk music and dance and probably drinking a little vodka and eating some delicacies of Russian cuisine and followed by some Russian comedy. Now, I don't ever know if I've ever said that phrase, Russian comedy, in the same sentence, but I know it's around, and uh, there are highly intelligent people. Some of my own roots go to Ukraine. So thank you very much, Spasiba and Yakuya. But uh, let's just say that there is a warming of the heart that takes place mainly in Putin, because after all, this is, this is his turf. And this is his background. And he's the one who's going to feel most nostalgic. But in this case, when we've got a trained leader, an intelligent and empathetic leader, such as Obama, in most cases, can tune in to the state of mind our dear Vladimir would be experiencing when he's watching the Russian folk dance and listening to its music, which is just opening up his heart hugely, and then complemented, of course, by some of their favored alcoholic beverages. I wouldn't emphasize that part too much, quite honestly, and more, let's say, the food of the Russian cuisine. So see all of this. You see the different ways that Putin is opening up, getting out of his ordinary head, uh, which is usually dominated by the amygdala, by the brainstem, by reptilian, fight-or-flight, conflict-based, separatist-imagined and uh, uh, oriented, and stepping into a higher space of fun, of pleasure, of feeling of connectedness to his own roots, and Obama is there to ride right along. So going back to what I was saying earlier, coherence is created in the brain of both parties. Heart coherence is also created and is measurable by the wonderful folks at a place like HeartMath, the Institute of HeartMath, out also on the West Coast. Then we have the wish to cooperate and the intent to cooperate because there's a desired outcome on both sides of peace, cooperation, and coordination of actions. You see how this all lines up? If people are standing only in their own space and they're not creating an atmosphere an environment, a context for relating, and I'm suggesting using these elements to create that atmosphere of well-being, which allows for the release of the oxytocin, that's the context in which peacemaking and creative resolution 
can occur. Can it be done without those items? Yes, it can be. It'll be drier, it'll be more difficult, and more obstacles to overcome. But to answer the question, can it be done? The answer is definitely. But why not use what you have available? A, why not use? So that's why I'm suggesting these particular items that are cultural in nature and allow for connectedness. That is a very important word in this context. We're establishing contact. We're building rapport. The rapport is being built through these various items I said of essentially a cultural nature. One person is listening to the other. And we can listen through all these means. It's not just words. We're listening to everything. Got it? Including the humor. And we recognize and acknowledge that there are fundamental human values that are shared among the people. Why? Because this is part of our species. I'm also, by the way, going beyond transcending and including human typology. Please don't think that I disregard that. I actually consider it to be rather important. But I'm even going to a deeper substrate now, not putting too much focus or emphasis on human typology. Because there are people who are much more prone to aggression, to violence, to domination, alpha males, for instance, and they want to control. Now, of course, there are psychological reasons behind that type. Granted, I'm not going to deconstruct all of that today, except in general. But we know that. And we know there are other people who are much more, let's call it, passive in nature, much more accepting and much more open-hearted and open-minded and generous of spirit. I'm saying we all have all of it in potentia. All of it is here. And what we decide to focus on and identify with is what's going to emerge at this lovely dinner table. And I'm suggesting that we be more yin in this case. We do more listening than actively speaking and seeking to control, yet both parties, all parties, speak and engage. There's different types of listening, and that's important here. There are different levels of listening. I'm talking about wholehearted, whole-minded, and whole-bodied listening. Wow. You know what? The skin listens, not just the ears. The skin absorbs frequencies. Not only is it our largest organ, it's also our largest lung, and this is going to make you really laugh, it's also our largest set of ears. Yes, the skin. The skin conducts frequencies. And the skin changes 
in response to sound. So, what you see is we've got an entire panoply of items that we can consciously address in order to create the context for listening, which then leads to cooperation and then coordination. By recognizing the deep values that we all share of a desire ultimately for peace beyond a warring, testosterone-driven male. Even that person has a deeper desire, I submit to you, for peace and for happiness and for well-being and for virtue and for integrity. Now, we have to dig down deep in many cases. Don't, as I said before, I'm not making believe that this is easy, but it is doable. It takes de-armoring, and it can be done. And I've seen it done, and I've done it. And so have many others, therapists, stress management consultants, diplomats, negotiators, different forms of adventurers in this space are able to navigate these turbulent waters. (laughs) It takes skill. That skill can be developed. And there can be peacemakers in every home. There can be peacemakers in every cabinet. There can be peace, not necessarily in the kitchen, but even for, in this case, Washington. In that cabinet, there can be and there should be a peacemaker position. It used to be called the Department of War. Now it's called the Department of Defense. It's the Pentagon. Interesting. A sacred five in the middle of it all. Whole other conversation. Dennis Kucinich, when he was a representative from Ohio, proposed a Department of Peace. Now, why wasn't that immediately cottoned to? Why wasn't that immediately implemented? Why wasn't it conceived decades ago? A, because of the amount of money in war and in defense and in security. That's why. And part of the larger conversation is going to have to touch upon, focus on the issue of withdrawing the voluminous amounts of money made in perpetuating war, Orwellian-style, or any other type of ongoing war. War should truly be the last, last resort. It's spoken of that way rhetorically, but not practically. Everyone seems to have their finger on the trigger, whether it's their mouth or on an actual gun trigger. So, however, that aside, because I'm very much framing that as lower brain, egoic, separatist, 
in nature, and I'm aiming us for coming forward in our lives, our next evolutionary cycle, on a spiral, as it were, biological cycle, including our mind and our hearts, both on the physical and the energetic levels, subtle body levels, of moving toward deeper love, which has deeper respect at its core, which means a true desire for peace beyond any material gain, a true desire for security of any family on any level of the scale, at home, all the way to nations. And an attitude, to some extent, of live and let live. You know, Joel Gray and Cabaret. Live and let live. Laissez-faire. Laissez-être. You know? That means not hovering over each other, but basic human values. This is not easy. I understand. There are groups like the Taliban who seem utterly committed to keeping women underfoot and submissive and uneducated. We're dealing with some very serious, very real challenges. So I want you to know I don't speak lightly and blindly and naively as though uh, there aren't some very difficult challenging obstacles in our way. I see Obama and Putin as one of the easiest, but there is so much garbage from the past to clear up and clear out. It's going to take some time. But I'm going to go a step farther and say we don't even have to wait for all of that to be cleared up and cleared out. We can start afresh. Every day can be the next best day of our lives. We can do that. We have the ability to hit the reset button. And that is very cool. It's part of our brain. It's part of our mind. It's setting up a new mental pattern. And literally, not just every day, but every hour, every moment, we can do that. And we can begin to recircuit our brain. We create a new neural entrenchment that is replete with the values that we hold dearest to us. And we begin to extinguish, i.e. let go of, those values that keep us apart and keep us entrenched in differing belief systems that things can never work. You know how many times in history, let alone in science, that that is impossible or that is impossible all the way to the four-minute mile. Those that were doing six-minute miles said, this is humanly impossible. And those were the words spoken by the marathoners and, and the track runners at a certain point in our history. Not long ago, actually. And then the six-mile 
the six-minute mile, went to the five-minute mile, to the four-minute. Just as one example, others said that we could never fly. Well, Wright brothers, Orville brothers, and others have proved that wrong. We see that we can communicate across oceans, and it's not by increasing the decibel level of our voice. It's through electromagnetism and frequency, audio frequency. We can see through the body with x-rays, and at this point, other forms of the other level of light frequency on the light spectrum. We can we can hear and see through sound, ultrasound, phenomenal. I mean, if you really step back and look at these technological breakthroughs and realize that these are all part of nature and the magnificence and miraculousness of nature harnessed by and through our mental, emotional, spiritual apparatus. It changes everything. And language is changing our brain and mind all the time. What we tell ourselves is what begins to manifest. Now we have so many neural circuits of stories we've told ourselves over the course of our lives that may be obstructing our getting what it is we say we want now because we're running diverse programs from the past saying we are not worthy of happiness, we're not worthy of well-being, we're not worthy of great health, we're not worthy of material wealth, all of the above. We're not worthy of love, you see. These are programs that are usually set into place very early. And I've spoken about this many a time. I go back prenatally. Really, I go back to inception. I go back to the zygote, man. That's right, all the way back. It's very interesting to do that and start to look at the program or as the Vedic teachings would talk about as well as Western psychological teachings, the conditioning, the conditioned mind, and what comes of that. So there are layers to be peeled back, God knows. And at the same time, even without the peeling directly consciously, by making a new commitment and relanguaging ourselves, as the language is genetic, language is actually material, and it does materialize in the form of atoms becoming coherent and then forming molecules and the molecules forming material reality. That's why they say in all esoteric and metaphysical uh, teachings that everything begins with an idea. And when that idea is fashioned with Passion, fashioned with passion, i.e., the power of emotion, passion, excitement, arousal. It starts to energize the idea, and people, one first says, yeah, 
I want to make this happen. And that idea was a series of electromagnetic, neurochemical, electrical activity in the nervous system that starts to take on shape, material form. Wow. So that's how things happen. And then people start to invest in it. Others come along. And it becomes an idea taking shape. And then it becomes possibly a sculpture. Or it becomes an organization. Or it becomes a nation. Or a family is birthed. Children. You're following the whole thing here, aren't you? Good. So if you connect these dots, okay, let's stick our heads into the, uh, into the maw of the lion, okay, or the tiger, and pick up something as difficult as the Taliban, who, let's say, has a radically different perspective than a Western, more considered liberal perspective on women. Okay? Be concrete. And the education of women and the role of women get pretty difficult. So you sit down, uh, let's say the diplomats sit down, the Taliban and a Western diplomat, and they say, hi. Now, how can we create some peace here? How can we create uh, an area, a region of Afghanistan, say, to start and build from there to create peace in the entire region and a sense of health, nonviolence, and well-being? How do we do that? How do we go about that? Well, this is a tall order, but that's the kind of order we're looking for because we want to deal with what's most difficult. The species is as strong as its weakest link. Well, you see, you start to say, after those cultural expressions, I've now referenced several times, of sitting down, let's say, in a Taliban leader's home, and he serves the European and or American diplomat some of his favorite food that perhaps his wife and daughter prepared, and they are eating a little bit, they are drinking a little bit. Is there music? Mm, dance? Mm, maybe not here. That would depend on the extremeness of the belief of this particular Taliban leader. So let's not push it and demand that those things are there. Absolutely not. But if they are forthcoming, God bless. If not, God bless. So we just have to reduce the items. But wouldn't it be good if the European and American diplomats, the Western diplomats, were to know some of his language uh, and even his colloquialisms, just a few. I'm not talking about mastering a language. What if they had half a dozen words that they could pronounce 
with the nuance and the flavor of his people, guess what happens? He has no control over this. Those words, those frequencies go straight to his heart. It's just it's what happens. This is physical. This is biological. This is scientifically provable. The frequencies reach the heart. If the sound is recognizable, it's not limited to that, but I'm sticking to that for now. The sounds are recognizable, and it goes straight there. Interesting. So now you have uh, a Taliban leader who's now a little softer around the edges. Oh, his anger is there, and his belief system is present. Oh, yeah, I'm not trying to say that all has been solved. Nothing's been solved just yet. Nothing. But a rapport has been built. Some oxytocin has been released. There is an environment of complementariness, of well-being and good intent. Let's go that far. There's a profound lack of trust and that is the issue over and over again. And that lack of trust is based on a series of past incidents in which one party or another or both proved to be untrustworthy. So there is not a track record that is favorable here. I'm really going to the extreme here to show how two or three or four or five people with a certain intent and a certain desired outcome that also has to be agreed upon by the parties uh, is realizable. And what has to happen is you begin to develop a new headset and a new commitment to trust. I say this, I do this. You say that, you do that, and you make arrangements, and you set up a context where trust begins to be built. And the more trust that gets built, the more oxytocin will also be released because one is no longer guarded, which is a physical, actual guarding. And it takes biochemistry to build those walls. It also takes another type of biochemistry, as I was describing before, to build those bridges. And I'm outlining the ways in which the bridges can be built. And it's by first building trust, that's the first bridge to build. And once that begins to happen, and I am going to assume that that can happen, you've leveled the playing field to some extent. And the parties can sit, break bread, or whatever form of it is on the table, and conversations about desired outcomes can commence. And there's going to be difficulties there too. Because a Taliban can say, our goal is to have you out of our country. You don't belong here, you never belonged here, and you shouldn't be here. Except for this lovely dinner. And... The Westerner can say, you're right, you're right, we should never have been here. 
it was only because there was an act of aggression that we have alleged alleged to a particular person who was living in Afghanistan that we decided to come in. And yes, it's true, there are lots of motives, and there was a lot of uh, a wish list of what we could achieve that is both political and economic control. It's true. We're going to back off that agenda, but completely. And the Taliban said, well, look, you're here. We want you to go primarily, but we would like you to at least remain in contact with us so that could help build our economy and it could benefit you as well somehow. Well, let's talk about your women. Well, we don't believe in educating our women. and We're not going to do that. We believe that their role is to be subservient and we're going to stick to that. So you shift the conversation to something like, look, isn't it peace and security for each Afghan and Taliban family that is most important? Can we shake loose of externally um, embraced belief systems that will separate us? Can we come to some consensus around basic human rights. Can we? Let's look at it. What's the fear around it? Let's look at the larger picture. And so it's an ongoing engagement on levels like this. What is peace worth to you? What is security worth to you? What is economic benefit and and gain and even wealth worth to you? What is respecting your land and developing its soil worth to you? How do we have a conversation that is more humane than it is programmed, conditioned, and mechanistic? Can we come to our humanity and shirk off these garbs we're wearing that separate us? Because if God is only one, and everyone agrees, and let's say that God is expressed so beautifully through nature, which gives us our food and our nourishment most fundamentally, and without her doing that, we are non-existent. We are out of the picture. We're out of the game. Can we start by respecting Mother Earth first? Out of which we know we need to cooperate. We know we need to communicate. And we need to transcend certain things so we can realize ourselves as biologically based beings with a common wish to survive. In other words, the conversation is on that level. Survival. How do we cooperate in assuring each other's survival? Now that's another platform 
for re-entering the conversation about why people need to be educated, not to be separated by gender or race or anything. And we start to see the smallness of those considerations and the largeness of the importance of the survival of the species on the planet. Anyway, I'm not going to complete this tonight. (laughs) It's not completable as such. There are many variables that are wild cards that I should also say are jokers. You know, it's not a simple linear practice, but it begins to create an atmosphere for conversation, for communication, for responsible communication. I had Marshall Rosenberg, just one of the thought leaders in this domain, on years ago, talking about nonviolent communication. How can I own the feelings and experiences that show up in my space without blaming you for my experience, but acknowledging that these feelings arise in me when speaking with you. That specific time, this showed up. Another time, that showed up. This is also something that we have received from the brilliant work of Fritz Perls and Gestalt Therapy. This is also part and parcel of responsible speaking and languaging. And realize that through language, we have a lever for peace and cooperation that little else has, prayer has, you know, but articulating our possibilities together, the power of cooperation. I'm going to leave you with one extraterrestrial idea. What if, and of course, Orson Welles hipped upon this many years ago. We were concerned as a species about being, let's first say, attacked. Then we'll morph that into a visit. By a species or a race from another planet. Oh my God. Wouldn't that quickly bring us together and unify our species field, you betcha. We better cooperate with each other and go far beyond the petty separations right now dominating our consciousness. Go beyond that to saying, oh my God, we need each other or we die. So then we come face to face with our learned dharmas those things that limit us and we go toward that more generous virtuous space of how do we get along how can I help you how can you be in service also to us how can we work this out because the uh, threats start with that from outside of us It's huge. Ho, ho, ho. It's huge. We have to cooperate or we perish. 
oh my God, being from out there in outer space. Hmm. He doesn't look so vicious. He doesn't look violently oriented at all. It actually looks like he's waving. Do you see that? He's waving. He wants to say hello. Oh my God, he can speak Afghan and English and French. This is incredible. Well, maybe we can have an interesting dialogue with him instead of trying to smash his spaceship in, you know. And then God knows what he could do to us. Ray guns or something. Anyway, I think you catch the drift. You get the idea of how dialogue and words with emotion and clarity and kindness of intent. We are reading each other and listening to each other on so many nonverbal levels and verbally we can express our appreciation of each other and a wish for a higher way of being, an evolutionary step we can take through our implementation of language. Now, truly, when you look at the larger picture of what we are facing today in this country and the divisiveness between political parties, between uh, different groups, ethnicities, when you have conversations like we're having today, it looks insane. Oh my, insane? Yes. Why? Because it is. This is pathological that we have allowed ourselves to put money first and race first and elitism first and color first and all of that and gender first, in fact, in front of the care of our own darling mother as a sacred love that sustains us. We don't do that. So we have threatened the earth. We've threatened so many species. We have held ourselves up as the king of the jungle. And we're not. And we're being eaten alive in so many ways. We have so poisoned our water systems, our lakes, our oceans, our rivers. We are in jeopardy. We are being hung by our own batard. And it is time for us to wake up and put aside the madness that dominates our society, our institutions, the thinking of the captains of industry. Money is purely an energy a currency, and at this point in time, everyone needs it, unless we agree that no one needs it, and that's another kind of interesting conversation. And Ubuntu, my good friend Michael Tellinger in South Africa, has been promoting that perspective for a long time, and it's worthy of our attention. Money creates hierarchy, not in itself, but what people do with it. And that is really the key and the pivot of everything. What we do with our mental apparatus and our words 
do we use language to unify and create cooperation, which is in our DNA to do, or do we emphasize the lower functions of our brain system, emphasize those, and head toward violence and conflict and domination instead? This is our choice, and this is where we can change the world. We just need a small amount of leverage, as the ancient Greek sage said. And with that leverage, we can change the world. Yes, as I said, a tall order, you betcha. Just getting people in a family to agree and to cooperate seems like a major accomplishment. So you know what? Maybe it is. Can it be done? Absolutely. If we stand objectively toward ourselves and our mind and the content of our mind and we start to create a context for something new. I love quoting the name of the book of one of my great teachers, Richard Bandler of NLP fame, one of the founders of it. Using your brain for a change. (laughs) You betcha. And that's what we're being called upon to do. Our back is against the wall as a species. Oh, Mother Earth, Gaia, Pachamama will live long after we're dead and gone. We've just become more fodder, more uh, enrichment for her soil. That's all. And we're probably parasitic if you really look at it. And it's time for us to wake up to our proper role in the larger picture. That is what I call sacred stewardship. Our finding our right position in the larger Taoist turn of the wheel. We are stewards. Our job here on earth is sacred. And it requires humility and a huge amount of compassion and love and forgiveness of our own species, of each other, to kind of get on with our role to being loving stewards of our soil, our planet, as a physical reality and as a spiritual one, that there is a spiritual intelligence of the highest order that governs the laws of nature. Wow. And how much time do we spend thinking about that one? Not a whole lot, my friends. Not enough. But we can. That's where will and commitment come in to making things happen in a way that can literally solve and resolve so much conflict Let's be honest, there have been commissions in South Africa and elsewhere. The uh, uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, where people spoke their pain and were listened to and spoke their anger and were listened to 
and given the space to free themselves up from past historical horrors, nothing short, and then free themselves up physically, neurophysiologically, chemically, from that pain and suppression and repression and depression and build a new being and therefrom a new society, a new way of being social with each other and building a new community. I like thinking about things physiologically. It gives us a point of leverage and we realize the way the system works is we're detoxifying pain and suffering and toxicity all the time. Our body minds are built to do that. Take in nourishment and let go of waste. Elimination. And that elimination in turn serves the ecosystem, the cycle of life itself. We just have so much toxicity. It's time to balance it out. Anyway, I'm going to come to a conclusion now of today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've gotten some gain from it and can apply it in your own lives to your family members, to you and your boss, to you and your representative in Congress. Uh, Or if you're a diplomat, maybe you can use some of this in your negotiations and discussions as a diplomat, as an ambassador uh, to other nations and utilize this thinking. And if you want, call me. I'll help you. All right? It's a lot of the work that I do as at MitchellRabin.com, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-R-A-B-I-N.com. And, of course, visit us at our media website, abetterworld.tv. So appreciate your attention, rapt attention. It's beautiful to me. And know that I appreciate that you have many places to spend your time and listening pleasure. And you have opted to spend it with me tonight. I am truly, truly appreciative. Also, do remember that we are a 501c3 in the United States. That means a nonprofit organization, and we accept contributions, donations, investments. And for that, we can give you a tax deduction. If that interests you, truly, your donations, contributions, investments in a better world helps create a better world, and it's so appreciated. If it's under $500, you can go to our website where it says Donate, and please activate that where they do not deduct any fee because it is a nonprofit. Uh, And if it's over $500, please contact me directly at mjr at abetterworld.net MJR, my initials, at abetterworld.net or by phone at 212-420-0800, 212-420-0800. So appreciate it. 
any size, you know, some people 50, some 500, some 5,000, some more. Keep adding zeros, folks. That helps us go and do what we do here at Better World, committed to well-being across the planet. Thanks again, and please send me your comments. I so, so appreciate them at those uh, at that email address, mjr at abetterworld.net, as well as recommendations, suggestions for shows. It's all good for us here. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.